Hello, and welcome to the Review Squared on Blaze Radio and BlazeRadioOnline.com or wherever you get podcasts. It's another night. Uh, we are recording this on January 29th, and it has rained today, which is nice. Um, I I don't drive, so it's not my problem when it rains half the time, um, unless I'm walking. In that case, it is my problem, and I wasn't today, so ha. Anyhow... I'm Gideon Karaoke. I'm John Brown. I'm Ethan Pelland. I'm Kirsten Dorman. I'm Alejandro de la Cedra. I'm Haley Smilo. And have we got a show for you this week? Oh boy. Um, y'all, are you familiar with stonks? Just how the stonks go up? Yeah, they red line go up. <laughs> yes. <Are you> down. <laughs> That's not stocks. Um, anyways, this week on the internet, it was all about stocks. For those of you who are not familiar with internet humor in this day and age, I'm talking about the stock market, actually. So this past week, a lot of us have learned quite a lot about the stock market because of news surrounding a subreddit called Wall Street Bets, attempting to make money by investing against hedge funds who bet the stock prices of multiple companies, most notably GameStop, would fall. And the response from Wall Street and trading platforms to this move was not one of glee. But for those of us who are confused by all this still, which I would include myself to a degree, let me attempt to explain the story and what things mean from the research I've done on this. First, what preceded the situation with Redditors was the hedge funds uh, quote-unquote shorting stocks, including GameStops. The hedge funds, which are a structured, riskier way for entities or the wealthy to invest in, shorted, or that is to say, betted against the stock by borrowing stock from someone else who owns it, then sold them and were planning to buy them back at a lower rate and keep the profit. This reached an extreme with GameStop, which had a high short interest, meaning more stock was shorted than stock shares left as some shares were lent twice over. The Reddit forum mentioned earlier, Wall Street Bets, noticed this and decided to take advantage and make a lot of money off it by inflating the stock through purchasing it at the expense of the hedge funds losing money. And this did happen for a couple days. Then on Thursday, popular investing app Robinhood, among other stock brokerages like E-Trade, pulled the plug on letting people purchase GameStop and AMC stock, among others that have been a subject of Wall Street Bets' interests. This led to outrage and calls from reg for regulations for members of Congress, including Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ted Cruz. Anyhow, there's a lot more to this than what I'm talking about, but this is a brief summary. What does the panel think? I think the... Um... I honestly, I'm being completely honest, I like do not know anything and about the subject, but I think it's interesting. I, how you talked about the tweet from uh, AOC and Ted Cruz, um, how they were, it's rare that they're in agreement about something, but she came back at him and said that you almost had me murdered three weeks ago. And I just, um, I applaud her for that because in all sense, that is real. I mean, not in all sense, it is true, but that is the thing I got from that. And 
it's yeah i just liked her tweet i thought it was pretty good um she had a really good comeback but yeah that's my opinion um oh with regards to cruz um senator cruz likes to try to sort of play in sometimes when it comes to sort of populist stuff um so like for instance i believe he did uh a town hall with bernie sanders on cnn like two or three years ago on on money and politics so every so often cruz will, will come in and sort of try to pos- to position himself on the more populist side of an issue but rarely does he really actually uh back it up with any substantive policies or votes so just just keep that in mind when you see ted cruz um i'll say cosplaying as a populist to go back to the stocks um part of this conversation um i think there's a couple big takeaways here and to me one of the big ones is that people like actually have some power against hedge funds And we typically think of hedge funds as these big untouchable corporations. And to an extent that's true. But if you understand how the stock market works, which most of us don't, like I don't, I have a basic understanding of it. But if enough people understand it and come together, you can like cause chaos among hedge funds. Um, A big thing here was that like Gideon was saying, they were short selling and the people caught on to that. I think in the end, it ended up costing Melvin Capital around like $3 billion, which according to the Wall Street Journal, which is a lot of money, um, obviously. And the other thing to take away here is that this is not like anything out of the normal. Short selling is a very normal thing. It happens all the time. This is just a situation where people happen to catch on to it and basically said, ha ha, big hedge fund companies, we're going to screw you guys over. So Good, good job, Reddit, for once, I guess. Right. And I think that's been a big part of the conversation that we've been seeing um, from person to person, right? Where some people are saying that they stepped out of line, they shouldn't have done this, this was so unnecessary and terrible of them to do. But there's also a lot of people saying that this is an example of the common person, the layman hitting back, punching up. And I think that's really interesting to see play out like we're seeing it right now, especially in terms of GameStop and and what else? Oh, gosh. AMC. AMC. AMC, yeah. thank and you. Nokia. And Nokia. And also uh, BlackBerry. I'm like, wow, Just really? A lot of other really random companies. Gosh, yeah. <laughs> that's super interesting. I hope the people who got the GameStop stock when it was good cashed out because i mean yeah i just i yeah i hope they i hope they got something good and you know um got themselves a good dinner that night because uh obviously it did not last and also i'm just i feel like powerful people in the positions of power keep underestimating the power of like people online especially young people online like if like we're like especially gen z like we're so i mean i can't speak for everyone but i think a lot of us are very very online probably too online and at this point i you know we if we can sell out 
a Trump rally in like a big arena, if we can game the stock market, I feel like there's not much that Gen Z can't do. So I hope people of power take me notice and maybe start, should start setting up maybe some stricter protocols, obviously like not great for us, but you know, if they were smart, they might want to start, you know, being a little more, I don't know, have a little bit better security of these things. It's really interesting that you bring that up because I think what we've seen trending as well with polling and things like that, Gen Z embraces collectivism so readily and they weaponize it so readily, which like you mentioned with the Trump rally, that jumped to mind for me too. And these news stories, I think, are just going to become more and more common as time goes on. Yeah, no, I, I do think that we're probably going to encounter more stories like this, but I do want to focus on the fact that this is wildly hilarious. Like, this is insanely funny. The po- This is... I have been continuously dying of laughter all week over this situation, because... Gideon, uh, but yeah. have you heard that this is discrimination against the poor, uh, <laughs> poor, wealthy citizens of this country. You know, they only have hundreds of millions of dollars. And because of that, that people are just so mean to them. You know, it, it's really showing that there's an example of, um, of uh, anti-wealth prejudice prevalent um, within American society. Yes. At least, if you're, at least if you're watching CNBC. Yes, um, I gotta say, I gotta say, not, not to get political here, it is kind of funny watching uh, uh, insanely wealthy people melt down on CNBC. I've been seeing clips of that. It has been it has been killing me because it's like, oh guys, you have everything, and here you are crying. You're like the free market until people come in and decide to take advantage of it. Um, oh boy. Yeah, so like between the response from the wealthy who who are very into the stock market, from the, the fact that these are a bunch of, by the way, uh, something worth noting, these a lot of these people are from 4chan. Um, this a lot of I this- think run- the way that uh, Wall Street Bets describes itself is, is, have, is as if 4chan found a Bloomberg terminal. Yeah, like they're from that particular culture, which, uh, one day, I, I we have to do an episode maybe of just talking about 4chan's influence on the internet because it goes deeper than most of you who are listening to the show would think. Um, but yeah, it's so weird. And it's also been covered very badly. This really doesn't have, to be quite honest, and from what I've seen, doesn't really have that much of a meaning apart from people trying to make money and it being wildly funny. Um, it is kind of problematic that it is so easy to, I mean, on both the what the hedge funds are doing, they're not creating anything of any value and they're basically casino gambling and Wall Street bets is casino gambling in the reverse in the attempt to take advantage of it, which is extremely problematic. And uh, yeah, needless to say, this is both problematic and funny, but mostly extremely funny that like folks, there is no deeper meaning to this. It is just wildly funny and kind of problematic as a lot of things are. <laughs> it's not the revolution. Yes, thank you. The Twitter leftists knock it off. Um, <laughs> anyhow, uh, uh, you know, I think we got to move on to the next story, so yeah. I'm going to hand it over. Wait, actually, Alejandro, you got one more thing to say? 
if rich people are so mad about um, people lower or quote unquote lower than them getting money, um, I just have a couple words. Where where are the checks, Joe? I'll leave it at that. Indeed, where are the checks, Joe? Um, President Biden, please. Um, anyhow, <laughs> I will hand it off to John to uh, talk about his story. Thanks, Gideon. And in my story for this week is none other than Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene from Georgia. Um, she first surfaced in the news um, when she tweeted out that she was going to um, impeach uh, now President Joe Biden on January 21st, 2021 which was just a day after he took office. And now there's a video of, um, of her going around confronting Parkland shooting survivor, David Hogg, before she was elected to Congress. And it went viral um, this last Wednesday amid an uproar over newly surfaced comments that she made in 2018 and 2019. Um, in this video, uh, she followed Hogg and harassed him um, about school shootings and about the Parkland shooting in general, uh, about like Nicholas Cruz. And she just uh, she just goes on to um, mention so much. And she previously called Hogg um, with the hashtag little Hitler. Uh, it said in a, written, in a written statement to CNN that the video was taken while she was in Washington, going from office to office in the Senate to oppose the radical gun control agenda that David Hogg was pushing. And um, it's just, you know, when this video came out earlier this week, I saw on Twitter, this is just absolutely mind blown. I honestly thought this video was from like, I, I didn't know this video was from like 2018, 2019. I don't know why I didn't think that, but, um, but just seeing her before she was in Congress doing this is, absolutely insane. I guess it's not shocking to most people, honestly, but she is meeting with House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy this coming Monday, which is to be dated on what they'll talk about. And But um, Democrats are calling on her to get expelled from Congress and more GOP leaders are coming out to expel her as well. What, is, what does the panel think of this story? I just can't believe that I mean, this is a lot to take in overall, right? But what's sticking out in my mind in particular is that she went and harassed the survivor of a school shooting, step one, what? And then step two, thought it was gonna look, make her look good to harass the victim of, of a tragedy. Like, I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around how you can simultaneously be so insensitive. I'm trying to choose a word that, I'm trying to choose words that I can say that the FCC will let me say on air and that I can say responsibly as a journalist. And yet I'm gonna just take my journalist hat off for a second here because what deplorable behavior. She yeah. should be so embarrassed and so should anyone that continues to support her. You know, yeah, no, you're exactly correct. And I don't think the journalist hat needs to be taken off here. Uh, I just don't think it applies here at all. The fact that she is absolutely harassing someone who 
survived a school shooting is exactly just so We're shocking and why would you do that especially she is older than him by like i'm i don't know how old she is but obviously why would you do that to someone who was like no more than 18 especially when he just survived a school shooting not that, that is absolutely insane and you know regardless of what you believe politically or where you align that's not the point with this particular part of the story right like john is saying this is so wildly inappropriate and it's it's deplorable it's disgusting and I, I will gladly sit here and be called biased for saying that <laughs> because i don't think this is a negative bias to have yeah and uh, no i i agree with y'all and it gets worse like uh, i'm looking at a story here from global news in canada and it's saying like oh yes so she thinks that Donald Trump won re-election. I mean, that one's publicly known. The Sandy Hook and Parkland school shootings were fake. The 9-11 attack was an inside job. And the 2018 California wildfires were caused by Jewish space lasers? Like the, yeah. If any of you were on Twitter uh, on like Friday morning, you might've seen a lot of stuff about space lasers. It's because that stuff kind of came out. Um, And not only does she think that, she's called for her own colleagues to be killed. Um, like this woman, Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor Greene, is objectively speaking an anti-Semite, a conspiracy theorist, and, and somebody who wants to kill her own colleagues. And I guess point number four on that list is should not be in Congress. No, if the Republican Party has any shame, they will strip her of our committee assignments and probably... <laughs> I mean, the going as far as to call for your own colleagues to be killed would normally yeah. be you'd lose your job. Expel her. No, I don't care. I don't care. Expel her. This, this woman's nuts. My goodness. Just any of the things that you listed on their own are indefensible. Just objectively to, to call for the killing of other people, especially people that you work with, yeah, Especially well, as a public figure. I just, I'm so in shock. <laughs> she wore a mask today in Congress. I forgot what it said. Um, something about, I think it like said Trump run the election. Let me look this up really quick before I have to issue a correction. But um, she, yeah, uh, yeah, there we go. Um, silence mask. And it's just, I yeah, I saw a picture of that today and you know, I mean, um, I really try, I really do, but with her, I just, the people of Rome, Georgia, I just, you know, I really don't have any words for her representation of Rome, Georgia. And I'm very sure Rome, Georgia is very conservative. Um, Oh yeah, and there's a picture of her with a mask saying that Trump won, like literally the words Trump won, but yeah, that's... Yeah. And, and can I tell you the worst part about this is that this, like, her being a conspiracy theorist is not something that's new. This is, like, that's not new news. She was well-known as a QAnon candidate when she was running in the primary in her district last year. People knew this. People elected her to Congress, and her party keeps her there. 
Um, now, some of the more outrageous stuff that we were talking about tonight wasn't known when she was being voted in, but her being a conspiracy theorist and a believer in QAnon, which, by the way, is a horrible conspiracy theory that uh, that essentially says that there's a satanic pedophile cabal. Like, it, it's all it's it gets very weird, and we're not talking about QAnon because that would be a whole episode in and of itself. But she. That was known when she was elected. And her party has sat there and been silent for the most part about this. And guess what, folks? Uh, If any members of Congress are listening to this, silence is guess what? You might as well be in agreement with her. If the party were smart, they would sideline these people as soon as possible. Don't let them talk. I mean, don't let them like make like any like public appear, make as little public appearances as possible. Don't put them on committees, like even if they don't want to expel them. I mean, just simply like from a tactical perspective, keeping them around is allowing them to, admittedly, not the greatest of, um, not the greatest of images for a party to already have, but is uh, taking that image and degrading it even further. I mean. Gosh, it like probably the worst one of the worst they had before this was probably like Steve King, but even like and King like had moments. I mean, like he like had the whole um, we can't rebuild our civilization with the children with the babies of other other uh, races thing. Um, but like even then, like just it's such a whole nother level that that these new um, congresswomen are on. Yeah. Hope, oh. oh, sorry, Alejandro. Go. Yeah, exactly. I hope that the Democrats, you know, the Democrats always want to have the moral high ground and whatever, but I think they just need to just stop being. Honestly, I think they, why are they being so polite? Like the, the Republicans clearly don't care, and they will do anything to you know bring you know they there's no there's no morals clearly in the republican party at this moment and that's been you know shown time and time again and i hope you know you know the democrats do more than just complain on twitter and make you know punchy tweets about the republican party and how racist they are which is all true but now you have the majorities so get some i was almost going to curse get some stuff done because you know there's limited time before the primaries and you know it's up in the air whether or not you know the democrats are going to lose these majorities for this short time you know that at least they're guaranteed to have them so i guess my thing is just i hope they don't get too caught up in these controversies which i mean they should care they should you know take the appropriate actions to protect themselves um uh, but, you know, just focus on the stuff that's really, really important, the, the people, because ultimately, like, Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to continue being racist, she's going to continue doing things that are going to get the views, like, she lives for the attention, like, in my opinion, I feel like it's clear, like, she loves the attention, so at this point, just ignore her, because she's going to probably vote no on all your stuff, but it's not going to matter, because you have the majority, so just get something done. Like this woman is, you know, her vote for, for at this time, 
at this point in time doesn't really matter because the Republicans are in the majority. So get some stuff done, like seriously, like the people now you've been complaining for four years about not being able to get something done and now you can. So better seize that opportunity before it's taken away. Yeah, no, Alejandro, I agree with you. Yes, uh, to the, you know, the newly minted Democratic uh, trifecta in Washington, like, yeah, you do things, nice things for people. There's a lot that has to be done. And to say, oh, actually, there are members, Democrats in Congress who are calling for her expulsion. Um, I'm looking here from CNN, at least 50 as of Friday night are calling yeah, 50 members of the House are calling for expulsion. Uh, the lead of this is uh, Jimmy Gonzalez, a representative from California. And of course, there's always the local angle, folks. Um, two of the Democrats calling for it are uh, from Arizona, are Ruben Gallego from Phoenix and Raul Grijalva from Tucson. So they're, yeah, they are joining 50, well, 48 other representatives in calling for the expulsion of Marjorie Taylor Greene from Congress. Um, how uh, unlikely it's going to happen. You need a two-thirds vote to do it. And before, we're, since we're kind of running low on time for this segment, I do want to say one last thing. Folks, um, unfortunately, Marjorie Taylor Greene is not the worst aberration in terms of, no, she's bad. I'm not saying she's good. I'm, I'm just saying there are more of, there's more where that came from. And I... If you can find a lot of these types uh, in closer to home in local and state politics. So I, I'm just saying, folks, like keep your eyes peeled, like the like against these uh, particularly insidious ideas, um, because yeah, there's a lot of varieties of them, and Marjorie Taylor Greene is not alone. I can assure you of that much. Anyhow, thank you so much, John. Oh, oh okay. I didn't know if we were like, John was oh. going to say, uh, like, on it. Okay, okay. All right, I'll start with I'm my... Sorry, uh, my bad. No, no, no. No, it's fine. Um, all right, so I'm going to start with my uh, story for the night. Um, it's a good one. Should, should make us all happy, um, except for a portion of it. So what I'm talking about tonight is of course, going to be a foreign policy topic, because that's what I do. And it is Joe Biden's um, basically, I think, pretty much all but guaranteed Iran envoy, which is Robert O'Malley. Sorry, Robert Malley. I always do that sometimes. So Robert Malley is a long, um, long-standing figure, but has sort of ventured out at times. He's, he's sort of been on the sidelines, but he, he is an important figure in the Democratic side of the foreign policy sphere. And Mali um, is representing sort of a different sort of track and um, sort of school of thought than some of Biden's other picks on foreign policy. Um, Mali, at, at first to sort of give some, some context about, um, I'll, I wanted to talk about his parents because I think uh, Robert Malley's parents are very um, important uh, individuals in sort of his, his formation and understanding why I think he's a, a good and different pick than some of other Biden's other ones. So Malley's father was Simon Malley, who was a Arab Jew who was um, took part in the Algerian resistance, not the actual resistance itself, 
but was very pivotal and important in, um, he wrote a newspaper um, and edited a newspaper called Africasia, which was very influential and important in the Algerian um, resistance to the French occupation after World War II. As well, Africasia, after the conclusion of that war, uh, took a look at sort of the developing world. So the nation, the former colonized nations of Africa, Asia, and, um, and just in a sense prevent, presented a different perspective and were, were proponents for decolonization and have in a world which better integrated and supported the development of these nations. While my, Robert Malley is not um, as Peter Beinart, who I would definitely recommend his piece. If you wanna learn more about Robert Malley, Peter Beinart, who is an editor at, at the Jewish Currents and a writer for The Atlantic, wrote a uh, piece and um, I'm gonna try to find the, uh, the title of it so I can share it so people can uh, do the reading afterwards. But as, as uh, Peter Beinart says, um, Robert Malley is not a, um, not a champion of anti-imperial movements as his father was, but he does sort of have that same perspective, a similar perspective, something that, that came from his parents. His mother also was a very important person in the Algerian nationalist movement at the United Nations. And so um, throughout his sort of career in Washington, Mali has always brought a more introspective look at US foreign policy. One that's sort of, um, as if you've listened before, Gideon and I have talked a lot about, is that the US as any nations, as any nation has had made mistakes and should atone for those mistakes and should be understanding of those mistakes. And that's not, Robert Malley and his father did not like believe in a sense, don't believe that the US is like, is not a, um, is not irredeemable. It's that the US is redeemable and that, but we have to atone for our mistakes. And so what I think that Malley is such a pivotal pick is because he's in such great contrast to the Trump administration's previous envoy, which was Elliot Abrams. Uh, Elliot Abrams, on the other hand, does not come from a school of thought which is introspective on the US's relations and past history with the developing world. Um, I don't want, I know we are limited on time for this episode and this segment, so I don't want to like fully go into Elliot Abrams' long track record, but Elliot Abrams was involved in the Iran Contra affair. He was responsible for at least a partial cover up of massacres in Central America. And in general, an individual within the US foreign policy world, which has not taken a re reconciliatory stance towards our, um, towards nations which we have had a um, bad history with. Now, this pick is, has brought some controversy from, from the more hawkish portion of US foreign policy world because they feel sort of concerned that Mali has not similar views to them. Um, now, I would also like to recommend, if you want to learn more about the Middle East, I would definitely recommend um, Murtaza Hussein's, and I hope I'm saying his name right, from The Intercept's coverage. Um, so he had a piece in The Intercept a few days ago talking about sort of the character assassination campaign, which I agree with the, um, how, that's being, how that's being described against Robert Malley. Most prominent in that has been Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas. Um, he has said that Mali has an aminus towards Israel and 
is too friendly with, um, with our enemies in Iran. Uh, Mali, previously before um, his role in the Obama administration, actually was supposed to be more important in, the, in Obama's first term, but he was forced to resign after it was revealed that he had met with Hamas, which Hamas is, a, is the current sort of ruling party in the Gaza Strip, in uh, the portion of the Palestinian territories. Um, and so in the past, that was used to derail uh, Mali's, Mali's con not confirmation, but his admittance into the administration because in a sense, they were saying that he's anti-Israel. But I think it's clear, and as, as Hussein says, Mali has just, as I'm saying, a different perspective. One that is more understanding and a middle ground and trying to work towards a peaceful resolution between the United States and Iran. And so I think what this shows is that the Biden administration is, is hoping and intending truly on fulfilling their promise of re-entering faithful negotiations with Iran on the nuclear deal. Mali also, and his probably largest um, accomplishment, was being the lead negotiator in the first Iran nuclear deal. So he is bringing a lot of experience, and that's that perspective I've detailed to the table, which is why I th think it's a really, I just gotta say, I think it's a really great pick. I really, I really think it's a very good pick and one that has been hailed by both progressives and moderates as an excellent one. Wow. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I'm not too familiar with Robert Malley and his, but I am familiar with some of his work, like the first Iran deal. And yeah, gotta say, like, not exactly a pick I would have, just uh, if you ask me off the top of my, if you described Mali to me, like, I don't know, two months ago and told me Biden's going to pick him, I would have been like, ah, I don't think so. But he did. And that's a, I guess, sort of a breath of fresh air. Uh, I do, my view on it has always been, I've not, I've, not, I've never hit it is that, you know, um, America should be a better faith player on the world stage. We're too often trying to burst and bluster in against everybody. And that makes everyone kind of distrustful of the United States at times, including our allies. And, and oh, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt to get in. <laughs> no, you're good. But yeah, no, it definitely is a change of pace that, and I, and I do look forward to seeing where this goes. I hope for the best because, you know, more peace in this world would sure be nice, especially in the Middle East. And perspectives like Mali's are very important when it comes to negotiations with Iran, with many of these nations which comprise comprise the developing world or formerly developing world, is because, well, <laughs> let's be honest here, in, in a sense, he like really understands and brings that perspective of the, of the U.S.'s sort of past transgressions in Iran, the U.S.'s role in overthrowing the Mossadegh administration in 1953 and in supporting of the Shah from 1953 to 1979. Bringing that perspective, bringing that understanding um, is very important in sort of rounding out. Um, you know, not everyone in Biden's administration has that same perspective and personal experience, but it's, it's, it's sort of, I think it meshes very well with, um, for instance, Biden's Secretary of State and Blinken. Um, and Bynard's piece was doing a really good job of sort of showing the contrasting but similarities of, of um, Blinken's sort of, Blinken in his confirmation hearing talked about how his step, I, I believe his stepfather 
was liberated from concentration camps by the by American forces. So sort of how his perspective is of is one of or at least his his upbringing, you know, he he was told of an America that brings freedom and and it stands for that in the world and that's his personal experience whereas Malley's sort of his personal upbringing was one that was more mixed. But it sort of I, I, it brings some more humility, it brings and I think it meshes really well because for they both in a sense both Malley and Blinken believe in a U.S. that can that is redeemable and can live up to its commitments on the world stage. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, really good uh, uh, things there. And I am definitely reading that fine art piece uh, after this. Uh, by the way, for those of you listening, I do want to note. I'll, uh, I'll link it in the description. But um, Ethan and I were on uh, News Dive. Uh, podcast of our friend Sam Carliner um, and his buddy Shane. Um, and he talks a lot about Antony Blinken, if you're curious, and hearing a little, going a little more into the weeds on that. Yeah. Um, I hope, I hope Mally, um, if you listen to both, you'll get the sort of the gist here, but I hope Mally might allay some of Sam's concerns on the Iran front. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, if no one else has anything to say, is there anyone? Nope. Okay. The panel's got nothing to say. So thank you so much, Ethan. All right, Kirsten, let, let's, uh, I'll hand it out to you for your story. Thanks, Ethan. International politics are just, they're so complicated. And I think we all, we all choose to mostly leave it to the two of you because you're just, you're knowledgeable enough about it to actually know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, but this week, we're going to talk about what else than a new true crime case um, on my section of the show. So last week, we talked about a series of crimes in California. And this week, I thought I'd like to bring us up back to Arizona, specifically back to Phoenix. So a little over 24 years ago now, on January 17, 1997, Scott Felater finished preparing a lesson plan for the Mormon religious education class that he taught. As Kevin Dalek writes for Oxygen, he also worked on fixing an issue with the pool outside before coming in and seeing his wife, Yamila, asleep on the couch. He said he kissed her before heading upstairs for what should have been a peaceful night's sleep, but this was anything except that. According to Felater, the next thing he knew, he was standing at the top of the stairs with a police officer pointing a gun at his face and telling him to get down on the ground. Yamila's body would be found floating in the pool, a scene officers would reportedly describe as being reminiscent of a shark attack. Between laying his head on the pillow around nine or 10 o'clock and then snapping awake, Felater had stabbed Yamila 44 times and held her head underwater in the pool, which neighbors testified to seeing him drag her outside and do. Despite the fact that he remains in Yuma prison complex since his sentencing in 2000, Felater maintains that not only did he not remember when he did this, but he does admit to doing it. A new episode of 2020 featuring a new interview of Felater's assertion that he was sleepwalking and has no memory of the murder airs this night of recording on January 29th. 
It will also feature a rare interview with Michael Filater, the couple's son who was only 12 at the time of his mother's death. As you can imagine, the discourse surrounding whether or not Filater really doesn't remember killing his wife is a bit intense. When Dolik describes the two world's leading sleep experts at the time, Dr. Roger Broton and Dr. Rosalind Cartwright testifying at the trial, there's a little bit of back and forth as to what their testimony had been. They said that it was possible for Philator to have been sleepwalking during the murder, but Dr. Broughton did admit that it was unusual for someone to do as many specific and complex actions as Philator had. Richard Bootson, a sleep disorders expert at the University of Arizona in 1999, told the AP Press, or sorry, the Associated Press at the time, um, that violence during sleep is extremely rare, despite their being documented cases of sleepwalkers walking out of upper story windows, throwing their children out of windows, and even driving cars. It's not really sleep, he told the AP. It's some kind of state where you're not fully awake and in control of what's going on, and you don't remember what's happening. According to reporting by the Associated Press in 1999, Philater had apparently put gloves on before committing the act and even bandaged a cut on his finger afterward. As well as this, police said that bloody clothes and a knife were found in his van, and some sources even suggest that he had changed clothes after the killing as well. Philater, though, has never denied committing the act, as mentioned before, and he insists very strongly to this day that he does not remember a second of it. There's no one else I can place the responsibility on. It's on my shoulders. I accept that and I have to move on, he said to ABC News, adding that he would never forgive himself for what he did and that he thinks about what she had to go through that night and the pain and terror she had to feel. Not only does he say he doesn't remember it, but he can't imagine how she must have feel, felt and the experience that she went through, especially not from the killer's perspective. And so here I want to open it up to the panel and ask two slightly different questions. One, do you think he's lying about not remembering it? And two, do you think that even if he doesn't remember it, do you think that he should be in prison still? He did uh, have the, sorry, my ringer is just not, my ringer on my cell phone is broken, but <laughs> my second question for the panel would be, do you think that he deserved to have the death penalty up for question when they were sentencing him? And should he still be in jail for the rest of his life? As he has said, he fully expects to be. That's a, yeah, it's just hearing about this and hearing you talk about it i also read articles about it before the show started and i don't know he just i just i don't get his point like i don't get why he's going to 2020 for this like obviously you're going to be in prison and right you you were sleepwalking and you stabbed your wife 44 times um it's just you know I, I I don't know if he's lying or not I 
you know, my personal belief is, yeah, like, how do you, he's, I think he's lying. I mean. Yeah, and a lot of people do too. There's also been a lot of speculation, though, that he really may not remember at least a good chunk of what was going on. Because witnesses at the time, like neighbors, police officers at the scene, said that he didn't appear coherent and he seemed genuinely shocked and acted as if he didn't believe it when they told him that his wife was deceased and had been stabbed. And not just that, but by him. So it is, it is very interesting. But yeah, yeah I just, John, I would say you lean towards the more popular opinion. <laughs> Yeah, I, I know Haley wants to say something too, so I'll keep um, my thoughts really quick. I yeah, yeah, I just, you know, I have a hard time believing it when you stab your wife 44 times and then you go and drown her and you claim, um, I can't say the word on air, but it's, you know, it's just yeah. a bunch of baloney. That's what I'll emplace it with. That I just, yeah. Yeah, no. sorry, but to your point, you know, really quickly, people tend to forget how many times that kind of thing is, like how many motions that is and how deliberate that needs to be. If you want at home or wherever you're listening, tap your thigh 44 times, count it out. It's yeah. kind of jarring. Yeah, so Haley, yeah. I know you had some thoughts. No, I was just gonna say, it's as John was saying earlier, it's just kind of strange. I don't know, like all the things he could pick, uh, lie, not lie, I don't know. I what obviously was not there. I'm not a sleepwalking expert. I don't know the science behind sleepwalking. So like either way, I don't know, but it is strange. It's a, it's a, if it is an excuse, sleepwalking is a strange one to use in this scenario. But I suppose we don't know much about sleepwalking on a scientific level, but if it is, it's probably a smarter um choice of reasoning my question to you Kirsten is has his, has the son said anything like ever about the whole situation so that's a really great question actually because this particular interview with the son is what's drawing in a lot of attention to this new 2020 episode he has not spoken publicly very much at all I think he did one other interview in the past but he doesn't speak from what I can tell to journalists nearly as much as, as his father does. And so to see him talk about this again, I saw clips from a previous interview from what looked like a long time ago, but this is really the draw for me, at least to tune in. I really like to hear and try to put myself in the shoes of these family members. And I think that's really important for everybody to do. And I think I've made that clear out my time on the show but this is a really great opportunity to do that for sure yeah I think that'll be the most interesting part and hopefully maybe he'll give more conclusive evidence either way if he knows anything Absolutely. Um, and as far as the death penalty thing goes just to answer your question there quickly I'm a person who's like not for the death penalty generally mm -hmm. um so I would lean towards no and especially in this situation like yes I know 44 stabs is a lot of stabbing mm -hmm. but like I would generally tend to believe that like death is punishable by death in really horrible situations here it's obviously a horrible situation but on a lesser scale in my mind yeah, and to clarify, he is, I believe, sitting with for life without parole, or at least for a very, very long time. He's an older man. 
he wa- he won't be getting out of prison for the rest of his life, but he does not have, he wasn't sentenced to the death penalty. His children actually went and pleaded with the judge to not, um, to not award, to not give him the death penalty, which is also interesting. But as always, I encourage every one of you on the panel and every one of you listening, look into this. Definitely, if you're interested, there's, a, there's enough out there to keep you digging for a while, or at least until next week. All right, um, I will take it from there. Thank you, Kristen. Um, so for anybody who's wondering who is maybe a, an expert concert goer or likes to attend festivals regularly, unfortunately, Coachella and Stagecoach music festivals have been canceled this year. Earlier today, Dr. Cameron Kaiser, the public health officer of Riverside County, signed a public health order that canceled both the Coachella and Stagecoach Music Festival scheduled for April 2021. Um, Although concerts have been happening in this pandemic, um, skirting all the health regulations just here in Arizona, the Press Room in Phoenix hosted a Polo G concert on January 16th, as well as a concert the previous night according to the Arizona Republic. And the Press Room was ordered to shut down on January 20th by the Arizona Department of Health Services as well as having their liquor license suspended according to the Arizona public. And with concerts not being safe right now, and Paul, you know, Paul, you know, they're just not safe right now, period, which we can assume will, will go into the coming months. We pretty much all we have are the memories of our past experiences. So I'm wondering if anyone, I know we're low on time, but if anyone has a quick and really fun concert experience they want to share, go ahead. Oh, okay. I'm being called upon to share a concert experience in the chat. Um, the one I randomly just thought of was, so I went to a J. Cole concert all the way back in 2009, which was like his third concert ever. That was very cool, kind of random because of the success he's had now. Um, but I'm always going to be a fan of small atmosphere concerts of like people who eventually become very successful. And that was very much that. I will say smaller venues, definitely. Oh, I've only been at two concerts, a Lord and Charlie XCX concert. And the Lord concert was in an arena. Um, and I'm very grateful because I have no idea if Lord will ever release music again, or if she'll ever, if she'll ever tour an arena, no offense, but to anyone else who was there at, um, I think it's Gila River Arena where the Coyotes play in Glendale, it well, there was a lot of empty seats, which is not a testament to Lord's music. Her music is great, but unfortunately, her crowd in Glendale, Arizona is just not going to be as big as the ones in Los Angeles or um, Kansas City, let's say. Um, so yeah, I definitely recommend having an arena experience and also a smaller experience. I can't speak to stadium concerts because those just seem overwhelming, but um, hopefully we can be back soon um, sweating on each other in a safe way uh, because that's the fun part of the concerts, I think, is just being with everyone and, you know, not uh, almost the absence of personal space is the most fun part. Anyways, move on to sports. I guess if you want to sweat on each other, you can play a sport. Or go to a sporting event that that that's my recommendation there i suppose 
Um, anyhow, speaking of sweat, injuries are a big problem in sports. Not most of the time they don't come from sweat, but they are a problem in sports. And what you might find surprising is that soccer is actually a huge injury-prone sport. A lot of soccer players get concussions due to head-to-head contact, and so the English Premier League has decided to make a rule that's going to start on match day 23, also known as February 6th, to allow for two additional substitutes due to concussions. That means they'll have five substitutes total now, rather than the typical three. I'm not going to get into a study I read, but if you want to go Google it, you can Google head injury uh, study soccer. A bunch of things will come up. A lot of them compared having brain injuries from soccer over time to an alcoholic brain injury over time. So in short, injuries are very serious, and I'm happy that the Premier League and the FA Cup are taking this more responsibly and looking to solutions to deal with head trauma. Uh, Quickly, panel, any thoughts on head trauma and fixing this problem potentially? Haley, I think you mentioned in our pre-show conversation, it's got something to do with the technique of how they had the ball, right? When they get injured when they had the ball, right? So yeah, heading the ball, you actually like use your neck if you're doing it properly so that your head does not get injured. Most of the injuries that occur are like direct contact head to head, trying to go into a ball or something like that. So has there been any conversation about introducing helmets or do people think that would look too silly or something? (laughs) Haven't read too much on it. Um, There's a famous goalkeeper who wore a helmet because he had head trauma. Um, so it could be a thing. I just think a lot of soccer purists or football purists in this scenario would be anti the idea because they'd be like, haha, this is weird. This is American football now and that whole stuff. So, yeah, because you know, head trauma is just so manly. Yeah, definitely. Clearly. <laughs> yeah. More. Oh, sorry. No, no, sorry. Hopefully, maybe some more American leagues who aren't American football because head trauma is just inevitable, but maybe some other um, uh, contact leagues in the, in the States can take something from what's happening um, there in the Premier League because um, while injuries are not always preventable in professional sports, there's always new science and new research that can be made to mitigate any injuries and, you know, with the use, you know, advanced stats and everything, all this, I'm just, all the smart kids, you know, they can come up with new stuff. If all goes well, this should be implemented around other leagues in the world. And while we're talking about science and research, we give you lots of things to research later tonight when you're done listening to this episode. So thank you for listening. We appreciate it. If you want, you can go follow us on Twitter, review underscore squared yes that's our twitter handle and you can also find us on instagram and if you have any stories that you want to tell we would love to have you tell them so you can dm us on twitter or email us i don't know what our email is but you can find it i'm sure of it um you can also listen to us on blaze radio every friday i don't know our time slot anymore because i literally don't know time 7 p.m thank you Um, anyway, have a good night, day, morning, whatever. This has been the Review Squared. The song at the start of the episode is Dedicated to the Press by Betty Davis, and the music you hear is by Springtime.